Good morning. Ask you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to Psalm 2. Looking at Psalm 2 this morning, it's been a really, really great week this week. I feel like I've lost 10 years of my life, but I think that's because I shaved. Um, so I am glad to be, to be here feeling fresh and spry. We have, we've had a great week here in the life of our church. So many things, our bacon, Bibles, and the biscuits began, Pine Cove City with our children. We had Thursday night our opportunity to gather together uh, in uh, downtown Greenville, Pastor Kevin, the choir, the orchestra, everybody did such an incredible job celebrating our freedoms Thursday night. And I'm really thankful for that event. It's the first time I was able to be a part of it, and God, what a, uh, what a blessing it was. So I appreciate that so much. This morning, as we gather together, we gather together with a specific purpose. This is an a, a unusual Sunday for us. It's one where we have simply one service where we all seek to come together, and I think that is right. Several times throughout the year, uh, we come together with one service with a, a central purpose, and that purpose is to gather around the table and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so this morning, what we will simply do is look to Psalm 2, draw our attention to our Savior and what he has done for us to the cross, and then, of course, for all who have trusted in him by faith, followed in him through baptism, we will join together to partake of the supper together, reminding us, refreshing us, giving us a clear picture again of what Christ Jesus has done for us. It is right that we focus in on these things. And so as we look to Psalm 2, we want to continue in this little section here. We started last week with Psalm 1. And as I said, I believe Psalm 1 and 2 are interconnected. Psalm 1 tells us of the one who will be truly blessed. And if you remember from last week, that meant satisfaction. We'll be truly satisfied. The thing that all of us are looking for, satisfaction, is found here in Psalm 1. And it says satisfaction is found in the person who delights in the Word of God and meditates on it day and night. Satisfaction is found in God's Word. And those who do not, those who would scoff at it, those who would mock at it, those who would turn away from God's word, Psalm 1 tells us that judgment will come to those. Judgment will come to those who do not follow God's word, but those who do will find flourishing and they will find, they will find life. So if that's the case, if God's word becomes that standard, if you will, those who come to God's word find flourishing in life, what we're longing for, ultimate satisfaction, those who do not will be like the chaff that dies and is blown away with the wind. There'll be judgment. There'll be no life in them. So you have life and flourishing on one side and judgment and death on the other. And the difference in this is your disposition towards God's truth. And so ultimately, why would anybody choose death why would anybody choose death and judgment from God and not life and flourishing, right? That becomes ultimately the question, and that's exactly where Psalm 2 comes up. Why would anybody choose judgment and death over life and flourishing for us? Why would anybody choose this? But, but as we know, they do. Some, cho 
choose this way and not life. Some choose judgment and not life. Why is this? Psalm 2 picks up with that immediately. And so as Psalm 2 begins, let's read that together. We'll read the entire psalm here, verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us this morning to look to your word for life. Look to your word for our satisfaction. Help us to find it in the one to whom your word proclaims, Jesus Christ the Lord. Look to him, Father, for there is no other place that life and satisfaction and joy can be found. All of this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The question of why is one of the most humbling of questions. So many times I know it makes me feel inadequate just considering why, the why question that our kids begin to ask. And you know that trail of whys. As soon as you feel like you have had a good answer to the first why, the second why comes. The the whys just keep adding up. But you can go on from there. It makes me feel inadequate whenever I'm facing someone who's lost a loved one or a dear friend tragically, and they say, why is this happening? And I'm sitting there with no idea. Why does this take place? The unspeakable crime takes place, and many lives are lost. Why did that happen? The natural disaster that takes place that, that many are hurt and go without so much, why did that happen? That why question is the one that all of our minds run to. Why is it that people are against the Lord? Why is it that these things happen, Psalm 2 is asking? That why question in life that we're always trying to figure out the reason behind it. Why, why, why? But when we come to God's word, what we learn and what I learned early on in my own ministry is usually I have no idea why. In fact, God's word, the Bible itself, never really answers the question, why? It doesn't really come to that. You can think of it in many different places, and we may look at a few, but it doesn't really answer the question, why? What it says is, trust me. Believe in me. That's what it says. The thoughts behind it, the ideas behind it, we may not know why, but what he says is, I am a safe refuge for you. I am your joy and I am your life. I am your satisfaction. Trust and believe in me. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. The author of Hebrews takes Psalm 2 and uses it several times 
Verse 7, he quotes verse 7 of Psalm 2. Uh, the Lord says to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It quotes it twice, speaking about Jesus as greater than the angels. It says, for to whom of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or in Hebrews 5, 5, so Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said, it, said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. Many references to Psalm 2 in the New Testament. Many references in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, when it's describing who's speaking, Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, referencing Psalm 2. Or speaking of Jesus in Revelation 2 and Revelation 12, referring back to verse 9 in Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Both times quoted there. So several times throughout. Maybe the most extensive uh, quotation is in Acts chapter 4 itself. When Peter and John had been questioned before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin sent them away, told them, never speak of Jesus again or you will be killed. And these were the very ones who had killed Christ Jesus just a few months earlier. And so as they're sent away, they go back to the followers of Christ, those who have believed after Pentecost, who have gathered together, the leadership were there, and they reported back to them. And those who, uh, as the believers gathered together to pray, they said this, who these sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, as they pray, they're reminded of Psalm 2 that this power that is going against them, that is threatening them and looking to destroy them is exactly what was promised in Psalm chapter 2 would happen. And so the raging of the nations is happening right before their very eyes against Christ Jesus himself. Psalm 2 then, as I'm pointing all of these out for a purpose, Psalm 2 is a clearly what we call a messianic psalm. It is pointing us to Jesus Christ. It's providing this, this structure, letting us know what this, who this person is about. It's pointing us to Jesus, specifically pointing us to Jesus like Psalm 22 or Psalm 45 or Psalm 72 or Psalm 110, all of these messianic psalms pointing us to Jesus Christ. This one is doing the same thing. And the rebellion of the man in Psalm 1 now has become this cosmic warfare of the nations against God and against his anointed. Why do they rage against him? Why do the nations rage? The psalm lays out in itself out basically in four sections. Each section is led by a different speaker. The narrator in verses one through three basically narrates this part of why the nations rage and the people plots in vain, plot in vain. Then verses four through six, God the Father speaks. And then verses seven through nine, the anointed son speaks. And then again in verses 10 through 12, the narrator closes it out. And while we could take each section at a time, I simply want to see that the opposition that is opposed here in Psalm 2, or what comes out as opposed to Jesus, this opposition to Jesus is unreasonable, useless, and ruinous. I believe ultimately that's what Psalm 2 is about. 
to oppose the one whom the Father sends to redeem is unreasonable for you. It's useless for you or futile, vain, and finally it's going to be ruinous. So let's look at those quickly. Psalm 2 teaches us that opposition to Jesus Christ is unreasonable. Kings and rulers of this world usually fight against each other. They have they battle over land, they battle over areas, they battle over riches, they battle over wealth, over whatever they may need. They fight each other. So the kings and rulers of this world, normally they have a, an enemy that is each other. But what Psalm 2 says is all of them have this common enemy, and that is the Lord God himself. The Lord is their common enemy. So they are looking ultimately to throw off, as it says here, burst out of these bonds and cast away these cords. These bonds and ropes or bonds and cords that they have to burst out of, that they fear of, or take us back to chapter one. The word and his promises, the word and God's provisions, the word of God are these bonds and cords that the nations are trying to burst out of. You see, everybody comes down or everything comes down to authority. Who is it that you must answer to? All of us have some authority over us, whether we like that or not. No matter what position you may be in, you have to answer to somebody. And who is it that you answer to? And what the kings of this world like to think is that they are unapproachable. They don't have to answer to anybody. They're kings. They're rulers. They set themselves up. They dominate. And so ultimately, they go against the one true and living God who has set the rules, who has set the understanding, and has given us his word. And so they try to burst out of his word. They try to burst out of his authority to try to throw it all as if it is nothing to them. Those who would reject, those who would reject the word of God want to reign themselves and reign for themselves. They want to do the things they want to do. They want to not see their life in any reference to the Lord. They want to, to commit whatever thing they want to commit and feel no compulsion from their conscience whatsoever. They are the ones who get to choose what they get to do. They are the ones who get to establish what they want, what they desire, and they don't have to answer to anybody. That's what's happening here in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Because they want to throw off the bonds of God's word and his truth. They want to be their own authority. They want to be their own power. And ultimately what the psalmist is saying is this is incredibly unreasonable Before, because we're not just talking about anybody. We're talking about the creator of the universe, right? We're talking about not just a king of this world. We're talking about the God of the universe we're talking about the one who spoke everything into existence. And as he spoke all these things into existence, he's the one who gets to establish the rules. Here's how it will work. Here's how we will live. Here's what we will do. This God of the universe is the one who never has to answer the question, why ultimately? Because he is Lord of all. It's in his own counsel. It's in his own authority. It's in his own strength. He is the one who does not answer to anybody. He is the one who does not establish. And all the kings are nothing but creatures who are here today and gone tomorrow, rise up in the morning and die in the afternoon. They're nothing but creatures before an almighty, everlasting God. So it's quite unreasonable for you to oppose this one. I think of Job one of my favorite sections in the Bible is Job chapter 38. In my Bible, it's just a few pages before. 
Job, we know, had gone through great difficulty and suffering. We know his friends weren't the greatest of friends, and they just kept telling him, curse God and die, man. Just get it over with. So Job kept questioning God, and what was Job's question over and over again? Why? Why? Why do you do this? Why, God, do you allow this? Why, God, do you let this happen? And finally, after asking why, not hearing for God from some time, finally in Job 38, God speaks. But it's interesting what God says. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you and make it known to me. In other words, who do you think you are asking me, the God of the universe, these questions? And if you want to come before me, you better dress yourself up like a man. Gird yourself up because you're going to stand before a holy God and ask these questions. And it's not you that gets to ask them, but me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Did you determine how much water I've put in the sea, Job? Did you determine where the lightning would strike and where it would stop and where it would begin? Do you Are you the one? He goes on for like two chapters like this. It's really incredible. Are you the one that told the sun every single morning, get up, and at night tell it go down? Are you the one, Job, that keeps the storehouses of snow? In fact, if you are that one, tell me where the snow is kept. Are you the one, Job, that leads the mountain lion through the mountains and helps it have its children? Are you that one, Job? For two chapters, the Lord comes and says, Job, why would you question the creator of the universe? Why would you question me? It's unreasonable for you to stand before me and question me. Let me question you. And then when I begin to question you, you begin to realize you're in over your head, brother. And so Psalm 2 says the same thing. Why do the nations rage and they throw their cords apart? They're in over their head. It's unreasonable that they would do this. In fact, it goes off next because the opposition to the Lord is not just unreasonable, but it's useless. In verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 of Psalm, it's, uh, Psalms, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. You're going to question me and you're going to seek to throw all of this off? God is the one who sits in the heavens. As Isaiah said, his throne is high and lifted up and no one can approach it unless he bids them come. His throne is above all other thrones. His name's above all other names. And so for you to question him or for you to try to throw off those bonds or you to try to step outside of his authority, for you to try to say that it's you that gets to establish your own rules and do those things, the Lord who sits in the heavens laughs at you. He says he laughs. He not only laughs, he laughs and takes notes. It says the Lord holds them in derision. There's a phrase in in Psalm 1, there in verse 6, the wicked will not stand, verse 5, in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of righteous, verse 6, for the Lord knows. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord knows. What is it that the Lord knows? Everything. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you thought this morning. He knows what you did this week. He knows what your plans are coming up. 
He knows all of this and he knows it perfectly and well. In fact, as the Psalms will tell us later, there's not a place you can lay down he doesn't know. There's not a step you can take he doesn't know. There's not a word that you can form on your lips he doesn't already know. And so here he says, he who sits in the heavens laughs at your plans to throw off his bonds. He laughs at your plans to step outside of his authority. He laughs at that. And he says, I'm going to take notes. I know I will keep up. I'll hold them in derision. I'll know what they do. I'll know what they try. I'll know what their efforts are. But his laughter doesn't just stay laughter. He's the one who's sitting on the throne. Remember in chapter 1, they, they try to sit in the seat of the scoffers. It's God who sits on the throne in heaven, though. And his laughter, it says here, turns to fury. He will speak to them in his wrath and tell them, terrify them in his fury. What will he say to them? When they try to set themselves on the throne, when they try to set themselves in place, he says, I have set my king on Zion. Before the temple was even built, David is writing this. David is writing this built upon the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would build the temple through David's people. And so he says, before it's even established, I will set my son on that hill. David is considering this promise and counting on it as already true. But we live after the promise has already been made and fulfilled where the Lord God has already established his son as the, the ruler of heaven and earth, where Jesus Christ not only came and born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place, he also rose again and ascended now to that throne in heaven where he is established as king and Lord forever and ever. And so in this, this was all God's plan. You see, the kings of this world have their own plans. They're going to knock those bonds of God's word off. They're going to step outside of it. But God has his plan. And just as Peter told the Pharisees in Acts chapter 2, you guys made a ruling and you put Jesus to death, but God overruled your ruling and he is alive. And ultimately, he says now, opposition to the plan of God is vain and useless to try to come up with some other way to conjure up life and flourishing for you is useless. To try to come up with some other way with power and, and strength in your own hands is useless. To go against the plan of God is futile. There is no other plan. Everything, including the thoughts and actions of the kings of this world, is working in the plan of God. So you can plot in vain, as the scripture says. The cross itself, the resurrection, the ascension, the beautiful battle plan of our Savior who would come and not take up weapons to defeat the enemies of this world. He would come and lay down his life and their victory has been won. That was the plan. And in that plan is victory and to go against that plan to find salvation and life is useless and futile. Finally, the son speaks in the next section, and he says, Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations that rage against him will ultimately and finally be in his inheritance. And as you gather around that throne in Revelation 7, and all the nations are there, the nations that have raged against him have been redeemed by him. 
And those who have not been redeemed by him will be judged by him. And there is no other category. Either you will be redeemed by him, with him forever in life and joy and eternal happiness. Or you will be judged by him, judged by your works in eternal death. It's futile to oppose. As I said last week, there's really no middle. Either you're one or the other. You're a child of God or you're not. And as Psalm 2 lays itself out, it only plays that out more. Either you're redeemed or you're judged. Opposition to Jesus is unreasonable. It is useless. And finally then, it is ruinous. It will ruin you. As verse 5 says, the Father has stored up wrath, if you will, for his enemies. That's not new teaching, by the way. It may not fit in 2022 to talk about the wrath and judgment of God. It may not. But in all estimations, what I can say is since the day that this was written in the Psalms to the day that Jesus came proclaiming the word of God to the day that the apostles proclaimed the word of God to the day that the Christians throughout all of history proclaimed the word of God, it has been very clear from the word of God throughout Christian preaching that you can be redeemed by Jesus Christ and have eternal life. But if you do not, you will face judgment and death. So we don't stop teaching that because modern man may think it's a little too harsh. We continue to proclaim that there is only one or two options here, either life or death, either redemption or judgment. And if you oppose Jesus Christ, you will find judgment. You can't read the Bible and come away with everything's going to be all right if you oppose and stand against the only way it can be. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the name everyone either rises or falls with. It's the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. To reject that name is ruinous to you and your life. To turn away from that name rejects the plan of God where he has found salvation for you through that Savior. To turn away from that name is unreasonable because you can never outrun the authority of God that you will one day have to answer to. But you need to know that God did not just sweep his fury and wrath under the rug for your sin. He did not just cast it aside. No, he sent his own son to die on a cross and he placed it upon him so he drank the cup of your wrath for you and there's nothing left and to deny what Christ has done for you and to not trust in him will be ruinous for you and your life forever and eternity ruinous and Psalm 2 says you turn away from me there's nothing else in fact, the Savior himself says you sh the, he will break with a rod of iron, dash them like pieces of potter's vessel. Judgment will come. It's the name of Jesus that we must turn to. And to put it that way as we end, it ends with a narrator's note, narrator's note here again. An invitation. Opposition to God's anointed is unreasonable. It's futile. And it's ruinous. Unreasonable, useless, and ruinous. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
The invitation is here then, in the midst of it. If you do not accept the one for whom the Father has sent to redeem you and save you, you're being unreasonable, you are acting in futility, and you will ultimately one day be ruined. So why reject? Why turn away? Why run from him? Why step aside from what God has provided? Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Come to him. Serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Give him not only your service, but your worship. And ultimately, all of this is calling us to loyalty. It's the language, the language that we would offer up ourselves to our king. We would serve our king. We will rejoice to be able to to honor him and to, to give him our life. And finally, we will demonstrate our loyalty to him by kissing him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Show your loyalty to the one, the Savior who has come for you. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I love how Psalm 2 ends because it ends with Psalm 1 in mind. Remember Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Satisfaction is found in delighting in the word of God and meditating on it day and night. And ultimately it ends, Psalm 2 ends with what? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Satisfaction is found when we find our refuge in Christ Jesus the Savior when we run to him for all that we have, when we give him all of our life, when we kiss him and say, we are yours and you are ours, our king, our savior, our Lord, we follow you, we rejoice after you, we worship you, we serve you. When we find that, that is the heart of satisfaction. You are not gonna find satisfaction outside the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You're not going to find satisfaction outside of his cross, outside of his resurrection, outside of his ascension, outside of the fact that he is Lord, ruling and reigning over all of the earth. You are not going to find satisfaction outside of his plan. You're not going to find it anywhere. Satisfied is the one who finds their refuge in Christ. And the one who finds his refuge or her refuge in Christ will be the one who meditates and delights in the word of Christ. Psalm 1 and 2 go together to teach us this morning that satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. With that in mind, we who are his children, who have professed faith in him, who have not tried to shirk or knock off the bonds of his word, but have recognized that in his word we find freedom. In his word we find joy. In his word we find peace. In his word we find it all. Why? Because in his word we find the words of Christ our Savior. And we find it there. And today we get to testify together as a body of people who have been redeemed and saved by Christ, that our satisfaction is found in him and what he's done for us. And that's what this supper is all about. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for it is truth. We thank you for Christ, for he is our 
Savior. God, I pray that everyone here who has professed Christ today can recognize the great joy that they can know in him and have in him. Help them, Father, to see that satisfaction and know it, God. And look nowhere else. Test no other waters. Seek it in no other thing but in Christ. And for all of those who profess faith in Christ to get ready to partake of this meal together, pointing us to what Christ has done, we rejoice. Strengthen us through it. Encourage us through it. Teach us again what it means to be satisfied in Christ. And Father, for those who may not know today, may today they again see the beauty of a Savior, the futility of turning away from Him and trusting in the things of this world. Help them today turn to Christ, kiss the Son, and find the satisfaction they long for. Father, as we turn to this moment, help each and every one of us to focus in on our Savior and our Lord. And we thank you for this opportunity. For it's in Jesus we pray. Let's stand together.